Anybody ever heard that song? When I was growing up, I was a big DC Talk fan. DC Talk is the group that sang that song. And, uh, but when that album came out, my parents would not allow me to listen to that song. Don't laugh. Uh, we were a holiness people, and we couldn't listen to that song. And so what they did is they took the tape. We didn't have CDs. It wasn't MP3s. They took the cassette tape. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but we took the cassette tape and they put it in one of those boom boxes that had two cassette, you know, tape record or drives there. I don't even know what we called them. Decks, tape decks, not drives. And they put that tape in one side and then they put an empty tape in the other side and they made their own version of the album skipping that song. So then I could listen to the whole tape, but not hear that song. Now the message of the song is great. It's the idea that we're supposed to save ourselves for marriage and we're not supposed to engage in all the things of sexuality of the world. So it's a great message. But they felt like the language of that song was a little too provocative for my ears. And so they decided that they were going to protect my ears and they were not going to raise a bunch of questions. I think really now as a parent, I think I know what they were doing. They didn't want to create more conversations and questions that they didn't have answers to. And so I think that they were trying to protect themselves more than me. As a parent now, I can so appreciate what they were trying to do. But man, they just felt like, hey, the language is a little too provocative for what we want our kid to be hearing. And, and you know, provocative language is something that exists all throughout our culture. It wasn't just something that happened on, you know, a tape or it's not just something we hear in music. It's not just something we watch in movies. I mean, it's everywhere, it seems. like Provocative language and provocative images and, you know, because my parents did that, I didn't actually get to listen to that song until Corey and I got married. I'm just going to kind of let that one hang. I'm not going to say that was funnier than you gave it credit for. I'm just going to let it hang right out there and just let it kind of trickle to the back because that's pretty funny. But, you know, provocative language exists all throughout our culture. And, and what I love about the message of that song and other things, other songs like it, is that we are not left, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not left to our own devices to figure out how to live in a language and in a culture that, that speaks those kinds of things. Again, the message of that song was great, and it's not, it's not just that those guys that wrote that song came up with a good message. They found those truths in Scripture. And when we read Scripture, 65 books or so we can read without this really provocative uh, sexualized language. And then we come to this one little book right in the middle called Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, maybe, in your translation of Scripture. And that's where we're going to spend some time today. Uh, we're concluding a series called uh, Words to Live By, where we're really looking at wisdom from the wisdom literatures of Scripture. The wisdom literatures are some of those books that we've been dealing with, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And uh, now we're looking at, at Song of, of Songs or Song of Solomon. It's written by a man named Solomon, fittingly enough. And you might know that Solomon was a guy that maybe had uh, good experience to write some of the things that he wrote in this book because he's a man that it claimed uh, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Not really sure how in the world he accomplished all of that, but he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so he writes in this book a lot of different things about this subject matter of sex and about uh, love and romance. And when you look at this thing, Solomon was a really wise guy. Uh, not like a wise guy, like a, you know, you're making fun of him. He's a really wise guy. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. Much of the book of Proverbs came from Solomon and his writing. 
Uh, He wrote over a thousand songs, and that's really why we have this book titled this way. Uh, First Kings tells us that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, and it gives us a very specific number, which I love when Scripture does this because I think there's something that God is trying to say to us. But Scripture tells us in First Kings that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Not like over 1,000, not kind of sort of estimating approximate 1,005 songs. And somewhere in that 1,005 is, is what we're reading here in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. This is one of or a compilation of some of the things that he has written. But when you look at this book, it's one of the most mysterious, unique writings, not just in Scripture, but really of anything that you might read um, as a Christian, as a believer. Again, I know, I know a lot of people when they're doing the read the Bible through in a year thing, they just skip the whole book. I know a lot of people that do that because it's, it's weird, it's mysterious, it is very sexualized, and so I know there's a lot of that. But I want us to look a little bit today to understand a little bit more about this book and then try to see if there's something that we can pull out of this in a, in a message I'm just calling Wisdom and Love. And so I want us to do that. But first, let's kind of look at what this book is, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. There's really five or six basic things that people interpret this entire book to mean. One of them is that it's an allegory. An allegory means that there's some hidden meaning there. So what you're reading is is disconnected from the meaning. The words are actually supposed to mean something different than the actual words that you're reading. But interestingly, there's nothing in the interpretation or the words that are written that give us that idea that, you know, there's something hidden here that we're supposed to kind of root out. The second thing, which is a little bit similar to this, would be something that's called like an extended type. And what that means is it's a long story where one of the characters is actually representative of a different character. And so interpreters, as they look at this, they look at the idea that Solomon might be representative of Jesus Christ. And so he's Jesus and his bride is the church. And while we see that image played out in Scripture in a lot of other places, there's nothing really in the text of Song of Solomon that would make us believe that the, the, the genre of this writing is that of an extended type. The third thing that a lot of people view this book as is just a dramatic story. It's just a drama. It's got two or three main characters. It's got some other little smaller characters that might interject into the verbiage that's given to us. But really, when you look at the kind of text that's given and the form of the text, it doesn't break down into acts like in plays, like act one, act two. So we don't see that there's really a dramatic uh, form to this, this book. And then the two that are kind of weird, but, but when you take it in the culture and the context that it was written, one is that it might be just a, a collection of Syrian wedding songs. And in those wedding songs, the groom is actually representing the, the role of the king, and the bride is representing the role of the, of the queen. And so some people see it as that. There's not a lot of things. You'd have to go outside of Scripture to really get that context, and so that's not something that's readily accepted. The other one that's kind of like that is that it would just be this like cultic, pagan, fertility liturgy. It would be something that's read or recited, because in these cultic, pagan uh, 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 religions there when you couldn't, when you weren't fertile, when you did, couldn't have children, maybe you would recite these things or, or someone would read these things over you and then that might open up your womb and you could have children. And again, there's, you'd have to go outside of the text to really figure that that would be why God included this. And then the, the last of these, and one of the most readily accepted is it's just a kind of a song extolling or, or kind of talking about human love and human marriage. But No matter where you read this and where you think it fits in the genre of the text of Scripture, here's what I think you need to know. The purpose of this book is just to celebrate human love and marriage. You know, there's a lot of people that 
try to figure out, you know, what the Bible says about love and about marriage and even about sex. And, and I think, interestingly, if you read through Scripture, you see that God created man and woman. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see the, the formation of man as a part of the formation of the earth, and we see the formation of woman, and we see all this interaction between them, and we see God's words to Adam about the role that Eve would play in his life, and we see their interaction, we see that they had children, and we see that they begin to procreate and reproduce to, to fill the earth, and you know, we see these amazing things. So we see that God has a design for man and woman, but since then, and I'm going to read this because I ran across this and I love this, since the world views sex and perverts it and exploits it so persistently, and since so many marriages are crumbling because of lack of love, commitment, and devotion, it is advantageous to us to have a book in the Bible that gives God's endorsement of marital love as wholesome and pure. Now, for a guy like Solomon, though, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a lot of people have said, how can Solomon be the guy that writes about purity and wholesomeness in marriage? And I get that. So a lot of interpretation here about the things that Solomon is writing is that his beloved, this one that he's writing to or writing about or quoting in the interaction between the young man and the young woman would be that beloved, that first love that he had, that first wife that he had before he fell into sin and polygamy where he took on these pagan and foreign wives and these other women to kind of just get away from his first love and the design that God had for that. And that's a commonly held belief about Solomon and his role in writing this. But here's what I know. When we read this story, I'm telling you, I read through the entire book this week. Again, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And it could make you uncomfortable a little bit if you really read it and you really dive into it to figure out what it's saying. But here's, here's what I want us to do. I just want us to read a few passages from this book today and then see what we might be able to take away Again, no matter how you read it, there are a couple of primary characters that are displayed through the text, and one of those is a young woman and one of those is a young man. There are some other voices that speak to their situation and speak to the love that they have and they share and the things that they're saying about one another. But I want us to focus here on the young woman and the young man, and we're going to start in Song of Solomon chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. This is the young woman speaking here, and this is going to be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but Song of Solomon Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is what she says to him. Kiss me and kiss me again. And can I get an amen about that? All right? For your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. This opening few verses of Song of Solomon 1, she is talking about this man that she loves. And she's saying, listen, I realize I'm not the only one that loves you. I realize that, man, your love is so sweet. There's something about the way that you interact with people. Your fragrance, it's like a cologne that spreads your name. It, it, it spreads like the fragrance. I mean, it just kind of goes out and people know your name. And, and man, you, you smell nice. And, I mean, there's so much about it. And he says, I know a lot of young women love you, but take me. Out of all the people that you could choose, take me. And here's what I would just say right up front right here. I believe this is the cry of a lot of people who are still searching for love. They say, man, there's a lot of choices out there. There's a lot of love options. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of places I can go looking for love. And I hear the heartbeat that's crying out saying, would you just take me though? Like, would you just get me? That's where a lot of us get in trouble in our pursuit of someone to love us. Because we just say, hey, listen, I don't care if you're even Mr. Right or Miss Right. You just be Mr. Right now. 
Like, would you just love me right now? Would you just help me to feel accepted and to, and to feel like I belong and to find some way to express your affection towards me in a way that I feel like, man, somebody cares about me. And you hear this woman crying out, take me with you, come, let's run away. The king has brought me into the bedroom. And what that last line really is referencing is that they are gonna get married. That the way that that happened in that culture, saying, hey, the king has accepted me, the king has married me, hasn't gotten me engaged. Now we're a part of this relationship together. Now, I want you to see a response. It's not the direct response right after that, but I want you to see a good chunk of language from the young man. This is in Song of Solomon chapter 4, and I'm going to read several verses here because there's a lot that's kind of here. There's a, there's a ton of, of meat here, but I want us to read this in Song of Solomon chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then skip to verses 9 through 11. That's what it says. You are beautiful. He's talking to this woman, young man talking to young woman. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now, let me stop right there and say, guys, I don't know that I would start with that, with your wives or your girlfriends. I don't want to be like, hey, your eyes are like doves, baby. I mean, I think there's something lost in the translation there. Your hair, I tried it on Corey and it didn't work. That's why I'm, I'm trying to help you guys. Your hair falls in waves. Again, probably getting lost right here. Like a flock of goats <laughs> winding down the slopes of Gilead. I cozied up to Corey last night and I was like, baby. Like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. So my love burns after you. She got up and went in the kitchen. I don't know what happened. It says, your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. I'm not sure if he's saying she only has two teeth. I didn't think this story was written in Alabama, but I'm not really sure. Oh, are there Alabama people in the room? I had forgotten that. Yeah, right. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, Twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. And we're just going to keep reading here. Before the dawn, breezes blow and the night shadows flee. I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hills of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. Skip to verse 9. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. With a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me. My treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. That last line just references where he found her in Lebanon, probably. These are two of the more tame passages in the Song of Solomon. Like, I, I helped protect you today. I filtered some of this. Man, there, there's some incredible language that is contained in this book. I, I couldn't really bring myself to read some of it in this setting. and Maybe that's on me, but I, I really felt like there, there, there really is some stuff in this story that I need to learn. There's some stuff here that I need to make sure I don't miss. And so this morning, just for a couple of minutes, I just want to pull out some wisdom in love that I see found here in the Song of Solomon. The first of those is that sin has tried to pervert. Pure marital passion. Sin has tried to pervert 
pure marital passion. We read in Song of Solomon 1.4 when she was saying, she says, take me with you, come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. There's, a, there, there's language here that's saying, hey, listen, we're in love. There's a passion here that exists and there's nothing wrong with that. We read throughout scripture with this idea of the love that should exist between husband and wife. We see imagery in Hosea and Gomer about how God loves his people and how he brings, them, brings his people to him. But we see that written through the imagery of, of a prophet taking a prostitute as his wife, one who had been unfaithful. I mean, there is something really, really special that what God sees in this relationship between man and between woman. And yet sin has corrupted that and perverted that even all the way back to the garden. Because one of the first things that happens when sin enters the world, when Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, what do they immediately notice? We're naked. They had been naked the whole time without any problems until sin made them realize that their nakedness might not be something that was commonly accepted and necessary for that moment. And so they covered themselves. And I'm not saying we should go back to the day where everybody just gets naked in the room. I, I get that that's not what Scripture is calling for, but I do believe that there's a corrupting of what God intended because of sin. Here's the other thing that I think is important for us. I mean, when I, when I was wrestling with this text, I could not get away from this point. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If I filter my reading of Scripture through that verse, what is God trying to teach me through the book of Song of Solomon? Like, it's not just this throwaway, mysterious text. It is mysterious, it is unique, it, it's kinda, it stands out for sure. But if all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for something, what is God teaching me? Through this text, I think one of the first things he wants me to know is there is a pure marital passion that's acceptable and God-honoring and intended by God, but sin has tried to pervert that and corrupt that. I am supposed to passionately pursue my wife. I'm not just supposed to love her. I am supposed to have an intimate personal relationship with her that is physical, emotional, psychological, intellectual, and verbal. And the words that are utilized in the book of Song of Solomon are a good template for me. Maybe not everything, maybe not the flock of goats and the rosy pomegranates, but it is a template for me that I am supposed to verbally pursue, passionately pursue my wife in the context of marriage. Culture wants to pervert it, but God intended to purify it. I think there's something there that God wants us to know. The second thing that I see in this book is that there must be a language to my love. There must be a language to my love. We read in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, You're beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Author Gary Chapman wrote many years ago the five love languages books. Many of you are familiar with this. Now it's like there's so many different versions. It's like five love languages for your pets and five love languages for all. But he wrote this with this idea that he was going to help us to define how we give and receive love. And there are five of those that are written in the book. Physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, and the receiving of gifts. Corey and I have every single couple that does premarital counseling do some type of love language quiz so that they can know what their love language is, one of these five things. And you actually have a score on all five of them. Maybe your score is zero on one of those, that you don't receive or give love in any way through that, that specific filter, 
of a love language, but we have every one of the couples that do premarital counseling with us do a quiz to understand their love language. We have a lot of the couples, many of the couples that are doing counseling post-marriage. They're kind of working through some issues. We make sure that they understand their love language, the love language of their spouse, because interestingly, we as human beings don't really hide our love language well. It's not that difficult for you to figure out what someone's love language is usually, because usually people give love the way they want to receive love. And so through these five things here, you might see that, you know, someone just is constantly serving, constantly serving you, serving other people, doing stuff to help you. I mean, you know, other better husbands, not me. The wife comes home and the dishes are always out of the dishwasher and the laundry's always done and he's changed her oil and, you know, rotated her tires and all kinds. I mean, he's just acts of service because he loves. That's probably an indication for his wife that acts of service is something that he really receives love in. And so she would want to maybe hone in on that and figure out how can I also serve him? What are some things that he needs me to do to help him? Maybe it's gifts. If somebody's just giving you gifts all the stinking time, they're probably looking for you just to remember their birthday every few years. Just give them a gift and let them know that you remember and just randomly give them a gift because you're just thinking about them. Because we tend to give love in the way that we wish to receive love. But in all of this talk about love languages over the years, I think one of the things that we've missed is that we aren't verbal enough with our love. We're serving people. We're, we're giving words of affirmation from time to time. We're, we're giving gifts and physical touch and quality. I mean, we're doing all those things, but I'm afraid sometimes with our emotions, we aren't verbal enough. We aren't using the words that God has given to us, the language that we have, to express that love and emotion towards somebody else. I heard a story one time about a man and a woman who had been married about 40 years. And they had a good marriage, and you know they, things were going well, and they had raised a bunch of kids, and those kids had moved out. And after the kids moved out, they were just beginning to have some issues and some struggles in their marriage. And one day, she just lost it. I mean, she just completely lost it. She's screaming, yelling, throwing things. He's just sitting in a chair watching her do it. She's, I mean, she is so mad. And finally, he interrupts her and he says, what in the world is wrong with you? And she said, do you even love me? He said, of course I love you. I told you the day we got married I loved you, and I told you if anything changed, I'd let you know. (laughs) And my fear is that maybe not to that extreme, but sometimes we just think that they know we love them. It doesn't even have to be in marriage. We just assume that our kids know how we feel about them. We just assume that our best friends know how we feel about them. We just assume that those that are closest to us know how much we respect them. We just assume because we know what's in our head and we know the things that we think about them when we're not with them. And so we've been thinking, man, I just love that guy. He's just a great guy, man. He's so helpful and he's so kind. I just love her. She's so talented. But how often do we take our mouths and use words to express that to them? We can't just say, well, I told him that one time I really liked him, and if anything changes, I'll let them know. But here's what I would say to you. Love them enough to let them know. Love them enough to let them know. If you're not letting them know, to them it probably feels like you don't love them. Unexpressed love feels like unlove. Love them enough to let them know how you feel. 
And the third thing is this. We talked about these first two things, that what culture and the world and sin has tried to pervert. God, he just, he had a pure, passionate way he wanted us to pursue our spouses and that love has a language. But the third is this, your words have power. Your words have power. Song of Solomon chapter eight, verse 10. This is what the woman says just before the conclusion of this entire book. This is what she says in Song of Solomon chapter eight, verse 10. She says, I was a virgin like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. She's really using language there just to express to us that she has aged. But she says this, when my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. Now, that, that could be funny. We could joke about that. But here's what's interesting to me. The language that she's using in chapter 8, verse 10, is the same language that he has used over the previous seven chapters to talk about her. You can go back and look at it. The way she describes herself is the way that he described her in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 6. And after she has listened to all the things that he has said about her, she says, when he looks at me, he's delighted with what he sees. I heard a man say one time that our scale of beauty should be set by our spouse. This idea that the way that we view the one that we've said we love should actually be the filter by which we view all beauty in the entire world. She, she, she says here, when he looks at me, he's delighted with what he sees. I don't think that's because she's like this super arrogant, like prideful person. You know what? I, I, I was reading this earlier and I was studying this week and I read this to Corey. I was reading some of these passages. I was reading it to Pastor Trevor as we were preparing for some things throughout the week. And I, I was reading some of this and I was saying, you know, here's what I think this means. What do you guys think this means? Man, this is crazy. I can't believe they talk about this kind of stuff. And, and Corey made this incredible statement. When I, when I read this part of this passage, she said this. Wow, she's a confident woman. His words to and about her have instilled confidence in her. I thought, man, that's, that's pretty powerful. His words about her and his words to her helped shape what she thought about herself. I have that responsibility. Men, you have that responsibility. We are supposed to help complement and grow the confidence of our wives, grow the confidence of our fiancés, grow the confidence of our, our girlfriends. And I, and I would encourage you in girlfriend relationships, just be careful not to use all the things Solomon said. <laughs> Man, I, I have that responsibility, right? It's my responsibility to say things to Corey where she never ever has to doubt that when I look at her, I'm delighted with what I see. I have that responsibility. Women, you have that responsibility. For most men, other than physical touch, words of affirmation is their primary love language. Not all, and it doesn't mean it's always right at the top, but somewhere near the top of the scale most of the time, most men, words of affirmation is one of their highest love languages. 
And if you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and you read about husbands and wives as Christ loved the church, and all, you see this idea that God was trying to help men and women understand the way that they should interact with one another. There is this idea that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do for the church? Christ gave himself up for her. He said to the bride, there is nothing more important to, than, than you, church, bride. Even my own life I would give up for you. And husbands, I... I believe we're called to the same thing. I want my wife to feel so secure in my love for her that she never has to doubt. She never has to wonder. Women are said, hey, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. And man, we get hung up on that word a lot, but it talks about the way that we respect one another and submit to one another. And there is this idea that wives are supposed to respect the authority, the, the role that God has instilled the husband to the wife. And there's a respect that's got to happen there. And words of affirmation are one of many ways that women can do that. They can speak into and affirm their husbands and say, I respect you. I don't always agree with you, but I respect you. Women, you have that opportunity. You can help with that. Parents, this translates into the way we talk to our kids. Corey and I have four kids. One of those is a daughter and I want Kinley, who is three years old, I want her to know that her daddy thinks she is beautiful, that her daddy thinks that she is super talented, that everything that she does is awesome. Why? Because I want to set the bar way up here for every one of the three-year-old boys in the toddler room right now that have got their eye on her. <laughs> I do. If you're the parent of one of those boys, listen, I'm setting the bar way up here. You bring their game up, it might happen. As long as you give us a flock of goats, I think that's the dowry. <laughs> I want to raise the bar. I want my daughter to always believe the best about herself. I want her to know the value that I see in her. Corey does an incredible job of speaking life into our sons, speaking life into our boys. She models what, what it means to be a, a God-fearing wife that loves her husband she compliments me in front of our boys. She compliments them. She talks about things that for them, man, it raises the bar. We, we want to raise the bar for them. We want to make sure that they're not just going to kind of look for Mrs. Right now. It's Mrs. Right. We want to look for the person that God has placed into their life that is destined for them, that helps them to accomplish all that God has for them. I, I read last night on Twitter. This is not even in my notes. I read last night on Twitter a guy that said, how do I know? If, you know, if the person that I'm dating is Mr. Right, and if you're dating in the room or you're, you want to date or you're single, listen to this. I think this is great. He said, how do I know if the person I'm dating is Mr. Right? He said this, you chase after God as fast as you can, and if they can't keep up, they're not right. Don't give yourself away because you just want somebody to say they love you. Don't do it. Chase God with everything that's in you. And I believe with all of my heart that God will have somebody that's running at the same pace, pursuing him on their own. And you're going to look around while you're running after Jesus, and guess what? They're going to be running right beside you towards Jesus, and you'll be like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? When did you get here? Don't undervalue yourself. Don't undervalue yourself. Know what you're worth. And parents, man, we have an incredible responsibility to help our kids know what they're worth. We have an incredible responsibility to help our spouse know what they are worth. Call out their beauty. 
call out their potential. Say things about them that you see in them that they can't even see in themselves yet. But you see it there. You see that potential. I wrote this down, and man, this, this is something I, I, I long to do. I believe. I want to live it out. I hope that I do. No one that I love should be longing for someone else to tell them their value. No one that I love should be longing for someone else to tell them their value. That's where adultery starts a lot of times, doesn't it? Adultery doesn't start with lust. It usually starts with language. It's not usually about the physical. It's about the fact that someone that they love isn't using language to express it, and there's, some this, there's this part in them that's just unfulfilled. They feel like they're not respected. They feel like they're not loved. They feel like no one sees potential in them. No one sees their value. And then someone comes along that sees value and calls out their value and compliments them and respects them. And they give themselves away emotionally before they ever do physically. No one that I love should be longing for someone else to tell them their value. Speak to the ones that you love in the ways that you want the ones you love to speak to you. Whether your love language is different than theirs, don't ever let them be longing for the words that you actually have inside of you. Let them loose. Let them go. You want them to say those things about you. You know what it feels like to receive those compliments and receive those words. And so here's the question. It's not going to be on the screen. Here's the question that I would ask you. Does the way that I speak to those I love make them love themselves more? Yeah, I've got to correct my kids. Yeah, Corey and I aren't always going to agree about everything, and we're going to disagree sometimes. But the question is, do, does the way that I speak to those that I love make them love themselves more? Or are they convinced that they're lower than scum? They're never going to amount to anything. They're no good for anything. I don't love them. I don't respect them. I don't think there's potential in them. I don't see value in them. There's no future for them. But is my interaction, the way that I use language, when I speak to them, does it cause themselves to go, wow, I, I've got value. When I'm around dad, when I'm around Jeremy, when I, when I leave his presence, man, I, I, feel, I feel like I can do anything. I can accomplish anything. I want my kids to feel that way. I want my wife to feel that way. I want those that I love to love themselves more when they leave me because of how I speak to them and the value that I call out in them. No one that I love should be longing for someone else to tell them their value. That's my challenge. And when I read the Song of Solomon and I believe that God has breathed Scripture for a purpose to teach me something, I see a man that used words to tell a woman how much she was worth and how much he loved her. And I see a woman responding to talk about how much she loved him and how much she respected his position as king and how much she respected how God had positioned him and how much she loved him and saw a future and, you know, let's get away together, let's do something together. I see words there that I want to emulate because I want to emulate what they're doing that there's a pure passion that I want to model that's not perverted by culture. I mean, I want to live that out, that there is a language to my love, that whatever that love language is, there's a language to my love, and I've got to express it, and there is power in my words. And I want those around me to know their value because of the words that I use to describe them. So today was wisdom in love, and if I were just to sum it up and give you the best piece of wisdom I can, I would say this, love is a language, speak it. 
loves a language, speak it. Find a way to use words to express love and affection and respect to the people that God has placed in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for love. I thank you so much for the Song of Solomon. I thank you that when we read it, we can giggle and we can be uncomfortable and we can be trying to figure out what it means. But God, ultimately, I pray that it would teach us something because all of Scripture is God-breathed to serve a purpose of teaching, correcting, rebuking, and building us up. Thank you for that. Thank you for including these eight chapters in the middle of your Scriptures to us. God, let us understand that there is a pure passion that you have ordained that the world has tried to pervert. Help us understand that there's a language to our love and help us understand that our words have power. And God, let us speak the language of love to those that you've entrusted to us. God, I thank you for that. Never let anyone that we love go looking for someone else to tell them their value. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.